This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 29, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Could occupational licensing make it harder for ex-cons to reintegrate as productive members of society? Steve Slavinsky is a senior research fellow at the Center for the Study of Economic Liberty at Arizona State University's Carey School of Business. His research indicates that states that make it harder for ex-cons to access occupations could spur those people back into crime. For people who've studied this issue, the name Morris Kleiner will ring a bell, somebody who's done a lot of work on occupational licensing and the uh, manner in which occupational licensing has really uh, hampered the ability of people to just go out and do something, typically owner-operator type jobs where people just say, hey, I, I have a skill and I'd like to apply my trade and occupational licensing places all these demands on them. But you've done some research on uh, a special category of people who don't even have that opportunity, which is in many cases not even to apply for these licenses so that they can go out and apply their skills. The broad, the broad consensus about occupational licensing is that it merely serves to keep out competitors and new entrants into an occupation. These vary by state. Some have more stringent uh, barriers to entry than others. And this has been a, a long-term uh, research program for a lot of folks uh, in, in uh, social sciences and in, in policy study. However, very little attention has been given to certain types of barriers to entry that only apply to a specific class of people. If you're in a state that maybe has a low barrier to entry, say a low uh, burdensome or very little burdensome in terms of licensing requirements, but you're, let's say you're coming out of prison, let's say you're an ex-con, someone who uh, might have done some time for something stupid they did as, as a kid, and now they're coming out of jail and they want to get reintegrated into the labor force. And yet, you're going to face a barrier that in some states is almost insurmountable. In a lot of states, they have what are called good character provisions. What this means is that uh, if you have a criminal record or a prison record, you can't even apply for a license, regardless of what the licensing requirements are for anyone who doesn't have a criminal record. So this puts an automatic and unscalable brick wall against uh, or in front of people who want to try to get into the labor force after serving their time. What this does is it then creates this very stark trade-off for people, especially those who are coming out of prison, which is to say either they can work even harder to get into the labor force or they can lapse themselves back into uh, reoffending, what they call the recidivism of criminals. Uh, and it, that's very critical three-year period after coming out of prison is when the see a spike in the recidivism rate. First year, it's relatively mild, but then the second and third year, you begin to see increases of people returning to crime if they are so inclined. So that first critical three-year period is going to be essential at effectively integrating uh, prisoners into the labor force. If you think about the demographic characteristics and education levels of people coming out of prison, they tend to be lower skilled folks. Most of them don't have high school degrees if they have a GED at all, for instance. And yet a lot of the labor burdens, or I should say the licensing burdens on workers in these states will have uh, levels of education that are even higher than that. Or if they only require a high school diploma, uh, the ability to actually get through the process within three years may also be a, a tough call. And so if you're in a licensing process and you're in that critical three-year period as someone who's an ex-con, uh, you are statistically more likely uh, to reoffend if you're not already in the labor force by that third year. So the states that uh, deny ex-cons the opportunity to even apply for these licenses, that's known as uh, sort of a character, good character requirement for 
uh, holding an occupational license and you looked at some of the data, so what did, what, what's the hard-nosed result that we can, we can clearly say, we saw this? If you look at licensing burdens as measured in conventional ways, uh, the best, of course, being the Institute for Justice study that I've used in prior analysis and other people have used in analysis of these uh, scenarios, uh, you see an interesting pattern. States that have low burdens of licensing can actually have uh, these good character requirements. In fact, most states that have good character requirements also have low barriers to entry on things like the Institute for Justice Scorecard. So if you put all these into the mix and you don't adjust for these good character provisions and you don't uh, put the, the right attribution of the label, uh, what I call prohibition states on those kinds of states where it prohibits uh, ex-cons from actually applying for a license, uh, you don't really get, and it, you get sort of noise, as they say in statistics. But if you actually look at the, uh, and go one step further and reclassify those states as being high occupational licensing burdens, specifically for ex-prisoners, then you see a very, very stark difference. The growth in the recidivism rate, and, for, and by recidivism rate, I'm referring to what they call the new crime recidivism rate. These are, these are brand new crimes, different than what they were in jail for initially. And this isn't even minor mundane stuff like parole violations or failing to, to, to meet a drug test or something. These are, these are full, full bore, very easy to define, understandable new crimes that, that go on the books as new crimes. So if you look at that three-year new crime recidivism rate in the states that have these good character provisions and or high barriers to entry through high licensing requirements, you actually have a 9% increase uh, over the period we looked at, above average, 9% above average uh, increase in the recidivism rate. Contrast that with states that have no good character provisions and or have low licensing requirements. We've actually seen a decline over the 10-year period we looked at between 1997 and 2007 in these new three-year new crime recidivism rates. So this is new research. There, there hasn't been a lot done on this, uh, if that's correct. That is correct. And uh, so what, where are you looking to go now to understand this problem uh, better? The first thing you've got to do whenever you see a result like this is figure out, can this be explained by other factors? Uh, and so you put in the analysis other control variables. I've actually done that with this study. I've looked at the crime rate. I've also looked at the unemployment rate. Both of those things would likely have a potential impact. Uh, the unemployment rate, for instance, would have an impact on the employment climate that an ex-con faces. And so if there's more job opportunities, they might be more easily integrated into the labor force. And if the crime rate is high, uh, you would expect that to also influence the recidivism rate because recidivism rate is part of the overall crime rate, and they would tend to move uh, in a positive direction, meaning when the crime rate goes up, so does the recidivism rate. That's a fairly consistent pattern. So you adjust for those things, and yet you still find that occupational licensing and these barriers to entry uh, still do explain a large part of the phenomenon we were looking at. But there could be other things into the mix, uh, things that are harder to measure, things like policing intensity, uh, maybe states that have high new crime recidivism is just because they have more cops arresting more people for new crimes. But I think that speaks to a broader question about how we're approaching these issues uh, as a policy reform matter. 
criminal justice reformers have talked for many years, and I think rightly so, about the sentencing aspect of prison reform, the idea that we're throwing people into prison, nonviolent prisoners, or people going into prison for things that they probably shouldn't be going to prison for. And maybe there are other alternatives uh, for rehabilitation or for penalties. And so that's through the first part of, of the process. That's the sentencing part. That's the imprisonment part. That's the sentencing and, and uh, rehabilitation stage. But there's a part of it that the second part of it, what happens when they've served their time, what happens when their sentence is over. And that's where I think criminal justice reformers need to spend a lot more time thinking, uh, thinking critically about how to reintegrate prisoners into the labor force. Because there's one thing we've seen that's very consistent, which is experience in the labor force dramatically reduces uh, the chances that someone's going to go back into a life of crime. And so if we're not thinking about how to reintegrate prisoners into society, and by doing so through lowering barriers to entry that are government-imposed and state-imposed, uh, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And the whole idea of criminal justice reform as a reform matter could end up crumbling. Sentencing reform will only get you part of the way there. We need to also be thinking about what happens after they left the jailhouse door as well. Steve Slavinsky is a senior research fellow at the Center for the Study of Economic Liberty at Arizona State University's Cary School of Business. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.